I'm actually reading right now a fascinating book called God and the Transgender Debate by a guy named Andrew Walker. Um, I haven't finished it, but so far it's a fantastic book. I'm telling y'all, if you got any kinds of questions about gender, gender identity, sexuality, <clears throat> there is a book for it uh, written by great people. This, uh, this guy actually works... Uh, for the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission uh, for the Southern Mass Convention. He works under Dr. Russell Moore. Um, this guy's just a brilliant dude. Um, and so that's what I'm reading right now. But all those books back there, I've read all of them, except for maybe one. Um, and they're all great, and I would commend them. If any of you want any of those books, tell me, and I'll, I'll order one for you. Uh, without any further ado, let's get started. Actually, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, um, in the name of your Son, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, we come to you tonight um, talking about a, a, just a, a serious issue, which is human sexuality. It is an inescapable topic in our lives. Um, we are, in many ways, not completely, but in many ways, we are defined by our sexuality. You've created us man and woman. Father, help us tonight to understand ourselves better and who you've designed us to be in light, not just of our X and Y chromosomes, Father, but in, in light of your intelligent design. Help us to appreciate the order and the beauty with which you created us. And ultimately, Father, give us a greater understanding and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. <clears throat> Last week I told you about how Kelly and I had marital counseling our first year of marriage. I don't know, how many people, has anybody been to marital counseling? How many people have been premarital? Okay. How many people have been to marital? <laughs> okay, um, that was our first year of marriage, and I don't know who was here last time, but long story short, this guy wasn't cheap, and he was commended to us, recommended to us, because he, he dealt specifically with pastors and would-be pastors. Uh, in fact, looking back, it was one of the best decisions, if not the best decision I ever made, um, but I'll, I'll give props to my wife, she's the one that had the idea, I went kicking and screaming, um, and I remember the first night, I, I just told him, I was like, I, I even, I, I mean, I didn't say it in like a, well, there was really no good way to say it, I said, you don't know me, I said, I might as well just pay you a hundred bucks just to go outside, and you back take a big stick, just hit me, I was like, you, you're not, you're not giving me a break, I was like, you're not even talking about her, that's how, that's how immature I was, um, I said, I, 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 might, I think I might have even said, I said, you're letting her off easy. <laughs> he listened. That's what, it, that's what a good counselor does, by the way. Is they don't just come in there and tell you what to do. They listen. And they teach you how to listen. And so he listens to both of us, and I feel like I'm getting attacked because he's coming after me. Well, what I understand now in hindsight was, you remember when they, you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? Who does God come after first? Adam. Where are you? That's singular. He's doing the same thing with me. 
I didn't like that. I was in seminary learning how to lead a church. The ironic part was I didn't have a clue how to lead my own wife. I was more than willing to receive the love of Jesus, but I didn't know how in the world to demonstrate the love of Jesus. Which brings us back to marriage. The gift that marriage is. That is precisely why God gave us marriage. So that we would have the opportunity to act out an earthly picture of the gospel. That's why it was given. Last week we concluded with the idea that ultimately marriage isn't about you. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel union between Christ and His what? Bride. And if we don't understand that, if you don't have that, you don't get marriage. If you go to a marital conference and they don't have that, they don't begin with that, leave. Don't waste your money. Don't start with the five steps to get a better marriage. The first step, gospel. Now, there's, you've got to flesh it out, and we're going to talk about that, but it has to begin with the fact that Marriage is a picture, a reflection. It mirrors the reality of Jesus dying for His bride. If we don't have that, it's destined to fail. And I will tell you, the first year of our marriage was a failure. If I had Kelly in here right now in the corner, she'd be like, amen. And I'm not kidding, too. I mean, a lot of y'all think I'm, I joke a lot, and I do, but I'm serious. first year was just, I didn't get it. Amen. Um, I was waiting for Kelly to get her act together so that I could start loving her. <laughs> Y'all laugh. We all laugh. But isn't it that, isn't it that simple? My, love, my loving her was conditional upon her doing this and her doing that. Or not doing that. And then Jesus goes, Avi, I didn't wait for my promiscuous dirty, rebellious bride to get beautiful so that I could start loving her. I gave my life for her, I served her, and I washed her, and I made her beautiful. We love because what? He first loved us. Very same principle in marriage. Men take the initiative to lead, but men also take the initiative to love we love the leading part, don't we? Mm -hmm. Have authority. <clears throat> and then Jesus comes and says, this is what authority looks like. And that's our model today. Marriage is a gift from God. It's also God's way of sanctifying naturally selfish people. In marriage, God shows us our need for grace and He shows us how to extend grace. Now, some of you might have been surprised last week. You came here... The title was Marriage, Sex, and the Gospel. You might have been confused by that and thought I was going to talk about sex in the church and you thought, what am I getting in for? And then we ended up talking about gender roles. We talked a lot about gender last time. Some, that, might have, that might have surprised a lot of y'all. But there was a reason for that. Our culture is telling us that marital roles aren't important. But that's a lie from the father of lies. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. If you can, go to, back to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. 
This passage is so important that we're going to read it again. If you don't mind. Okay? <clears throat> this is what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now stop right there. Kick it off with a bang there. That's why there's an old saying, there's an old a joke, it's not really funny, but uh, there's a joke about a guy, a woman went to church for years and, the, and the, she left her husband at home, he never wanted to go to church. Well, he finally start, he found the Lord and wanted to start reading the Bible, and he, the first chapter he read was Ephesians 5. <laughs> and he started reading this and he goes, honey, you're supposed to submit to me. And the woman, not even, she goes, keep reading, you gotta, give, you gotta die for me. <laughs> If we start at verse 22, it looks really good for the men, but hold on. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Stop right there. You know, don't let anybody tell you that this is just a marriage text. Because I'm telling you, it, 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 that describes the gospel better than John 3.16 almost. My goodness. Let's continue. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loved his wife loves himself. We're going to come back to that one. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. <clears throat> Did you see how clear the roles are? Paul's not equivocating. That's what you're supposed to do. In a, in, a, in a role sense, there are roles that God has designed for us to fulfill in marriage. Did you notice that Paul quotes from the Old Testament? What book? You might catch that. He quoted from an Old Testament book. Which one was it? I'll give you a hint. What'd you say? Deuteronomy. <laughs> That's that you can't go wrong, Deuteronomy. No, Genesis. Which part from Genesis? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why do you think Paul goes all the way back to Genesis? What do you think? Why, why, why do you do that? He says, I'm not making this up. Here, remember this. Manhood and womanhood aren't cultural. They're creational. I'm going to repeat that. I didn't come up with it. I stole it from Russell Moore. Manhood and womanhood aren't cultural. They're creational. Our culture is telling us we can define what manhood and womanhood are. Paul says, No. This is from the beginning. This is in Genesis. There's a design here. We don't get to decide what a man and a woman are. 
We don't have that kind of authority. Contrary to popular belief, last time we talked about this, lipstick and a bikini do not make you more of a woman. Contrary to popular belief, a double mastectomy does not make you less of a woman. Rock-hard abs and a four-wheel drive and having biceps like Franklin Clackham do not make me more of a man. Would you say, yeah, don't hurt. I was, I was stealing that from so I wish Franklin could be here. We're not going to get too political, but it's possible to talk about human sexuality today without blending politics. And I'll tell you, the Supreme Court doesn't get to decide who a man and a woman are. We can't trust our culture to tell us what a man and a woman is because right now America has no idea what a man and a woman is. Here's a couple examples. America is the same place where movies and commercials and magazines celebrate half-naked women parading as sex objects, but yet also advocates, advocates women's rights in the Me Too movement when men eventually do treat them like sex objects. America is the same place where a woman is celebrated if she becomes a model, but yet is also celebrated if she becomes a man. America is the same place that now insists that a 12-year-old can decide if they want to have body-altering surgery because they feel like a girl. I read Andrew Walker in this book says, we're the first culture in America, instead of letting our sex determine our gender identity, now we can let our gender identity determine our sex by altering our bodies. Human sexuality in America is whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. But God says it's not about how you feel, it's about how I've created you. God didn't make a mistake. So actually now, everybody turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I think I mentioned last time, I don't know if you have been watching the news, if you don't or if you live under a rock, let me just feed it to you. In 2019... There will be no more Boy Scouts. They're just the what? Scouts. The Boy Scouts aren't even the Boy Scouts. Because that's you're being a bigot, honestly, if you can't let girls be in the Boy Scouts. That's what our culture has brought us to because we don't want to defend the naturally God-ordained differences between man and and woman. Here's John. Here's Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the first 10 verses, if that's okay. Very first 10 verses in the Bible. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let, saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters and that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. 
Do you notice a theme in the way that God chooses to create the world? Anybody? Everything's good. I'm going to give you a hint. Dark, light, heavens, earth, seas, dry land, morning, night, man, woman. It's all in twos. There, are, there is order. Contrary to popular belief, the universe did not begin with a big bang. It began with precision. Man and woman are a part of God's good design, and it's ordered. It, order is not a bad thing. The chances are pretty good that if you don't believe that the universe began with order, neither will you believe that your marriage should begin with order. There is a temptation in modern America to see order as oppressive and old-fashioned, but God looked upon His ordered universe and He said, this is good. Then comes Adam and Eve. Everybody go to verse 26 through 28. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Stop there. Human sexuality has a critical role from the very beginning in God's design for the world. What we talked talk about last time. Homosexuals have yet to make a baby. If you wish for human flourishing to continue, you need two sexes. That is not by accident. What else did we learn last time? Well, we learned that everything was good the first five days, but after the sixth, he says it was what? Very good. Man and woman are the crescendo, the climax of God's creation. Precisely because no other part of his creation bears his image. What a lot of people don't always see, well actually, before we get to that, both Adam and Eve are both equal in worth, value, dignity. They're equal in their relationship to God. We started with that last time. We have to, we have to start any conversation about Christian sexuality with that. Both man and woman are created equally in the image of God. Did you notice what God does immediately after He creates them? This gets missed a lot. Verse 28, what's it say? Blessed. He blessed them. Yeah. It was a blessing to create Adam and Eve. This is His handiwork. God says it's good. Verse 31, God saw everything that He'd made and behold, it was very good. This is such an important place to start for manhood and womanhood because of this fact. If it's good enough for the Creator, it's good enough for me. I think oftentimes, uh, I think I've done this a couple times, so I know, but I love to ask young couples, I love to ask the man, go, um, What's, what's it mean to be the head of the, of the marriage? And sometimes I get, uh, I don't know. But what's it mean to have authority over your wife? And they'll go, 
What do you mean? Like it's a bad thing. Whoa, 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 we need to clarify. I don't, I don't, honey, I love you. I still love you. I'm not a, no, no, I ain't like that. No, authority is a good thing. We just, there's so many negative stigmas today with the word authority, we feel like we got to exonerate ourselves. But God says it's good. Men, be proud of the fact you have authority. Now, have authority like Jesus. We're going to find that. Our world has no idea what authority is. But I think men are afraid to be men. Women today are afraid to be women. Hold on. You, you, no, I don't want to submit to my husband. I'm equal. As if we have to choose. But what we see here is that we can have both. Men, you can't be ashamed to say you're the head of your... Now, here's another thing. We have to teach our kids these things. Our children will not simply pick it up by watching TV. If you're just absorbing manhood and womanhood from our culture, what it says is you're equal. You're going to get that from American culture. But what you're not going to get from American culture is you can be equal but with different roles. You won't get that. What did we talked about last time. The Cleaver family is gone. There's no more Leave it to Beaver. Whenever that came on, maybe when Bob was alive somewhere. Bob's still alive. Bob is alive, yeah. <laughs> His second life. <laughs> before, he, before, before he was born again. Maybe that was the thing. <laughs> Bob, did you used to watch Leave it to Beaver? Never did. Okay. What am I? I love Lucy, maybe? I watched. Well, today, we've gone from I love Lucy to, what is it, I, I am Jazz? Transgender girl. TLC. My point is, our children will not know the goodness and the joy of God's design unless they're taught it and they see it in the home. I think as a culture, we've, we've Christian parents, and I've even succumbed to this sometimes, even with my two old, two-year-old kids. We often think it's our job just to teach our kids right and wrong, but your job as a parent doesn't stop there. You have to teach your kids and show them to love what is good and to love what is right. You can, you got, we got, well, obviously, we have to let the Scriptures inform our consciences, but your conscience does not teach you how to love the good. That's called the Holy Spirit. And that's something that comes from the Scriptures as well. Let's go to uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Ladies, take note. Before he gives Adam a woman, God makes sure that Adam has a job first. Go to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Quick question here. Ladies, I want, I want one of our, our ladies here to answer this. What does it mean for that Eve is Adam's helper? Anybody want to take a shot? She's to assist him in assist whatever him. he's doing. Assist, okay. To be a partner. Be a partner, I like that. I, th I think that's one of my favorite parts to ways to describe, okay. Partner, assist. Anybody else have a, have a word or a, a way to explain that? I want, I want the women. I don't want the men going, well, she's supposed to... <laughs> a teammate. Teammate. Good. A teammate. Okay. Anybody else? What does it mean? 
Isn't, this, isn't that a basic question? Women and men, this is basic to the way you define your marriage. Here's what Trillia Newbell says about her husband being her husband's helper. I love this. This term helper has gotten a bad rap. But it was actually God's solution to an otherwise unsolvable problem. Man needed a helper fit for him. Helper in the original Hebrew means the one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking. This isn't a wimpy role. This isn't a wimpy word. We magnify God as we embrace the calling to come alongside our husbands and gladly supply strength where they need it. You supply strength to Him. That word is the same word for the Holy Spirit. Helper. And, and, and what I mean by that is not that your wife is divine, although in some sense I guess she is. The Holy Spirit is not less than the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is equal in deity and power and attributes with the Son of God, but He supports the authority of the Son of God. Let's go to verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to all livestock. To every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So God is giving Adam an incredible amount of authority here. You get to name everything. To name something or someone, especially in ancient Near Eastern culture, is to have authority over that thing. So, what do we see here? He actually... That's one other reason we know that, that Adam actually has authority over Eve because Adam names Eve. Here's a question. Why do you think God parades these animals in front of Adam and lets them name them before creating Eve? It's kind of like a practice round to see if you can take care of them and provide for them. Okay. Saving the best for last. Saving the best for last, okay. <laughs> why does he, why, why is he, why is he, I mean, it's like, it's like a parade. He gets to name them all. Why do all that before Eve? He didn't want to tell him what to do. Practice the authority, okay. Here's what Ray Ortland explains. This is what Ray Ortland says. He's a pastor in Nashville. Really smart pastor. Why did God put Adam to this task before providing Eve? Because God wanted to prepare the man, awakening his sense of need, lest God's precious gift be squandered on an uncomprehending and ungrateful man. The not good aloneness that God perceived in verse 18, Adam himself did not yet sense. So the thoughtful discovery involving, involved in naming the animals is how God alerts the man to his isolation amid the beauty and plenty of an otherwise perfect world. In fact, verse 20 can literally be translated, but as for Adam, he did not find a helper fit for him. The man now feels his isolation and is prepared for the greatest gift under God he will ever receive, greater than all the creation itself. 
So in verse 18, God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. By the end of verse 20, Adam knows for himself it's not good to be alone. None of these creatures provide companionship for him in the way that he can. I'm sorry for... I don't know if we have any cat ladies in here. I, I was, there are certain comments I make and I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> your pet cannot be anything remotely approximating your wife. That's in nature. I've counseled folks before who are trying to decide. I, I, people have come to my office and, and they're trying to decide if, if, they're, if they're called to celibacy. There are a lot of people who are single and they're, and, and they're saying, did God create me to be single? Paul says singleness is a gift. It's funny that not a lot of people see that in the moment. And one of the first questions I ask people who are dealing with that, am I called to celibacy? One of the first questions I ask them is, do you feel alone? I know a lot of people who are called to singleness, they don't feel alone. They like being by themselves. That's one of the first, not the only, but one of the first indicators that you might be called to singlehood. My father, Abidale Todd, is a very independent person. Very, very independent person. Um, but I remember, as a six-year-old, I remember after mom died, I could see as a six-year-old the dad was lonely. Oh my gosh. Um, I was at my Aunt Jenny's house years ago and she brought out... Y'all ever have that aunt who loves to bring out old videos? That's my Aunt Jenny. She brought this like Christmas 93. You know, I was like, 93? It's probably like, you know, they were... You know. And it was funny. We were all wearing bad sweaters. Grant was picking his nose. I was running around. We were small. But I saw my dad. Dad's just sitting there in the corner. That is not my dad. Dad had just lost his wife. Dad was lonely. And years later, Dad said, yeah, there was, at nighttime is when I felt alone. And God, by His grace, gave him another wife. Not wanting to be alone, men, we need to hear this, not wanting to be alone is not a sign of weakness. For widows, widowers, single folks, wanting to share your life with someone is a natural inclination that God has given you. I think our culture, especially with men, I bought into this for years, says that manhood is about being strong, self-sufficient, independent, tough. I don't need a woman to complete me. Well, that's a lie. From the very beginning, man is not an independent being. To our parents and our grandparents, listen to me now, the natural beauty and longing for marriage is something that we have to recapture for our children. Don't assume your kids understand the beauty of marriage. When I was a youth pastor in Louisiana, we would have, um, I don't know if they have this, I think they have this uh, at First Baptist. Matter of fact, I, my first Sunday at First Baptist, I think they had this. Where basically they have, um, where they honor the seniors who are graduating. I think they had that down. Yeah, yeah. There's a girl going to Yale, I think, um, last year. Um, and uh, at the very end, they tell you what school they went to. 
or their name, what school they went to, what they want to, where they're going to college, or what they're doing after high school, and what they want to be. That's kind of the four things that, at least back in Louisiana when I was a youth, that's like the only time I got the pulpit is when he wanted me to kind of parade the high schoolers. And I did it for three years, and what she's got was, uh, my name's Tommy uh, Burroughs, uh, I... Um, going to LSU and I want to be an engineer. My name's Cindy. Um, I, I'm graduating from Central, about Victorian, and I'm going to um, I'm going to Tulane. I mean, just standard kids wanting to shoot for the stars. And then one girl got up there and she goes, um, I won't say her name. She said, uh, I want to be a teacher, um, but I also really want to be a mom and a wife. And I went. Dang, girl, you don't get that anymore, do you? You know, in our American sensibilities, we go, I, yeah, I know that, but what do you really want to do? Well, that's what she wants to do. See, her family, her husband, her, her dad, her mom had groomed this young lady to see the beauty of marriage, and she wanted it. That's the way it should be. She already understood at an early age, I'm not meant to be alone. Far too many kids today, even Christian kids that grow up in church their whole lives, are being trained to think that this life and that their goal in this life, at least in this chapter of their lives, is only about getting into school and getting a good career, a good salary, and being able to establish yourself first. And only then do you need to start thinking about a marriage or a family. Let me stop there. For the most part, that thinking, nothing wrong with it. Okay. We want our kids to shoot for the stars. We want our kids to achieve their dreams. If you're good at school, go. It is not good, however, to teach them, implicitly teach our kids, that what they need to do is they need to get their thing going first, and then they need to add marriage to it. That's dangerous. So what happens is by the time our kids get married, they've been trained to think that their needs and their salary and their success and their career comes first. <coughs> and then by that time, they don't really understand that now they're supposed to enter into a marriage where they're supposed to just give up themselves and completely surrender and serve another person. See, the American dream is good, but a marriage will show you how far you've bought into it. We're grooming our kids to be independent when God says, I designed you to be interdependent. It was not good for Adam to be alone, and God showed him that it was not good that he should be alone. Let's do the same for our kids. Fathers don't act like macho dudes who don't need mommy. Show our kids that you depend on Jesus and you need your wife. I love to watch a doting husband. Open the door. Actually, I need to probably open the door more for my wife in the car. She told me that the other day. You know, I, I think one thing is neat. I'm just going to read it. Y'all don't go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. Just listen. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Did you catch that? God has made man and woman in such a way that neither sex can boast against the other. 
To the women, you're from Adam. You came from man. To all the men, there is not one of you today who's here that didn't come by a woman. And God set it up like that. We're interdependent. The very institution of marriage is designed to squash our egos and our pride and our false sense of autonomy. Marriage is designed to prepare us for our need for Jesus by showing us that we are not self-sufficient. If a woman cannot submit to the authority of her husband, she cannot submit to the lordship of Jesus. If a man cannot sacrifice his own life to love his bride, he cannot surrender his life to Jesus. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, and marriage prepares us for the gospel. Verses 21 through 23. Let's go back to uh, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused... This is how... This is how Women came about. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So from the, from, the end, from, the, from the moment that Eve was created, God is showing her that Adam has authority over her because, of course, he allows Adam to what? Name her. But that's not my favorite part. My favorite part is two words in there. See if you can figure out what my favorite two words in that part are. At last. At last. Can you hear the relief in Adam's voice? I finally got a friend. I'm not alone. Adam prizes Eve. She wasn't a burden. She was a gift. Men, that is what women are. One of the most valuable lessons I've learned in marriage is to watch the way that I talk about my wife when she's not around. You will never hear me call Kelly the old ball and chain. You'll never hear me say that. And I would hope that I don't hear any man here call her his wife that. Because it's not that I don't understand the joking there. It's that I don't want people to ever think that my wife is a burden to me. She is a gift. In marital counseling, one of the tools, like, like real counselors, one of the tools they often use to draw couples closer together when they're fighting is one of the, one of the tools that a counselor will use is he'll ask both of them to recount the reasons they fell in love with their spouse. They'll have them go back to the beginning. They ask them to talk about the first time they met because that's when our hearts were fluttering. That's when we were excited. We talked about, I think I told y'all last time about my first date with Kelly. Blind date. On the cognitive level, I'm going, she's attractive. On the unconscious human level, I'm going, she's different than me. She's a woman. She doesn't dress like me. Her hair is different than me. She wears makeup. She doesn't talk like me. 
that differentness I understood from the second I met her, and that's what's part of my attraction to her. The differentness that God has created between man and woman is beautiful. We also talked about last time how homosexuality arises when men no longer feel that differentness and that mystery with women they find it in other men, and vice versa with women. I think that phrase, at last, our goal for marriage is to keep that mentality. But yet we get kind of used to marriage, and I'll fall into it too, where we kind of take our wife for granted sometimes. She's just, she's always there. She was there when I left. She's probably going to be there when I get home. Women, maybe it's the same with you. But Genesis 2.23 is not just some ancient text that we need to... I mean, this is a love story. I want to read this. Puritan Matthew Henry describes Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 like this. Only a Puritan could, could write like this. The woman was not made of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I love that. I don't know if it's all theologically accurate, but I'm going to go with it because it's great. Can you imagine Adam waking up and God being like, here's what I made for you. You talk about an awesome Christmas present. Whoa, what is this called? Oh, you can name her. <laughs> She's fit for him. She's fit for him. She's like him, but she's not like him. She's a match. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman, woman, isha. Even the names themselves indicate similarity, but differences. None of the animal, none of the animals on God's created earth could satisfy Adam's need for companionship. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. For, you know, there are three different kinds, three basic, um, there are three basic modes of thought when, you come, when it comes to human sexuality and manhood and womanhood. There's, there's three, if you had to boil down. There's the kind that you could see, you could find in the Middle East, you could find in China, you could find... Uh, in parts of Africa, you could find in many fundamentalist homes here in America, and that's called authoritarianism. And that's the lie that man and woman are different, and they're so different that man is superior to the woman. That's called authoritarianism traditionally. There's the second school of thought, which is predominantly what you'll find in modern America and in European countries, and that's what's called egalitarianism. This is what a lot of feminists believe and other liberal groups. Basically, this is the belief that gender roles are so similar that they're interchangeable and you get to actually fulfill whichever one you want. Like, for instance, the guy's more laid back, the woman makes more money. How many, how many have ever heard this phrase? Woman wears the pants, she becomes the man. That's egalitarianism. You can just be whichever one you want. The guy doesn't want to be the man, have the woman be the man. Actually, there's a new phenomenon right now in the last 20 years, stay-at-home dads. I haven't found one, but apparently they're around. Then there's the third way. This is the biblical way. This is complementarianism, which is an awful theological word that no one uses. It was made up by old white people. It says that man and woman are equal, 
yet they're also different with different God-ordained roles. That's what the Bible says. We talked about how last time our culture today wants us to choose between being equal and having authority. The Bible says here in marriage, you can have both. Today, the, the word, I think we talked about this a couple Sundays ago, how the word authority now has that connotation to mean superiority. Those are two different things. At no point is Adam ever superior to Eve, but Adam has authority over Eve. This concept is, is Western civilization is built on this concept, but now the sexual revolution is pushing it out and saying, no, 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 you can't have authority over me because we're equal. And that's creating a false dichotomy, at least in the way that the Bible presents man and woman. We're equal, we're similar, but we're with differences. This is something that I did not understand early on in marriage. I think it's because a lot of young couples, how many people ever heard this? Well, you've got to find some common interests. I remember one time, Kelly and I, I might, have, I might have even preached this one time. Kelly and I, we were having a fight again our first year. And Kelly comes home, she's crying. I'm like, what is going on? She's like, we don't have anything in common. I'm like, yeah, we do. What? I'm like, well, we, you know, we both love Jesus. That doesn't count. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is no lie. We spent 20, 30 minutes, we came up with one thing. We both loved Mexican food. <laughs> that was it. And it was enough, it completely made my wife distraught and she was crying. I'm like, I don't, well, why do we even get married? I'm like, well, babe, I love you. I'm like, we don't have anything in common. You like country music? I don't like country music. You, do, you just go down the list. And what, she had a case there. She kept going down. I'm like, my goodness, we're different. <laughs> I'm like, you like football? I don't even know how, how it works. Like, well, you can learn. <laughs> we were so young and so naive and so stupid that Satan had tricked us into thinking that our differences meant that we weren't meant for one another. We were blind to the truth that there was beauty in our differences. When you add flesh and you add ego and you add pride to differences, the recipe is a disaster. But when you have holiness and love and the gospel with differences, with humility, you have a recipe for an interesting, joy-filled marriage. Thank God, I can say today, God, Kelly is nothing like me. I can't believe at the time I wanted someone who was. Because now I think, my goodness, I would hate her if she was another aunt. The differences in marriage allow for unity, not uniformity. Like a lock and a key. Thank God Jesus was not like the church. Because remember, why did God make us different? So that we could point to what? Gospel. God has designed marriage in such a way that our differences strengthen our union. Men, here's a question. Raise your hand. How many, are you, how many of you are thankful that your wife is different than you? Good. You've learned at least one thing from marriage. Have you ever been 
watching somebody fight with another person, they're usually related, and then somebody from like a third party goes, you know, they just, you know, they just, uh, they're arguing because they, they're exactly like one another. This is one of the reasons that Paul says that homosexuality is quote-unquote contrary to nature in Romans 1. It lacks the basic differences that God says is good. It's also a perversion of the gospel. If marriage reflects and mirrors the relationship between Jesus and the church, two men or two women in a sexual one-flesh union do not mirror the good news of Jesus in the way that God has designed That's like having two churches, for instance. Sameness in marriage is a distortion of God's design because it conveys a lie about the gospel. Christ in the church, husband and wife, there is unity in our God-ordained differences. I wanted to end. (coughs) Have any of y'all seen, y'all ever seen, uh, how many people watched Saved by the Bell back in the day? I might be showing my age. Okay, I'm glad I got Lee there. Okay, Scott. You ever watch the, don't even lie, Smiths, I know y'all didn't. Okay. Um, I'm thinking 40s, 50s, okay, good. I don't know, the Washingtons may not. Y'all ever watch Saved by the Bell? It was out in California, y'all are California folks. So, anyway, do y'all ever, when that show, they'd be hanging out, and then all of a sudden, Zach would snap, and everybody kind of go, and then Zach would kind of walk around like talking. He would call a timeout. Everybody would pause. And I'd always watch Slater would always be hanging out by the, you know, he would just kind of go. That's kind of what Moses does in chapter 2, verse 24. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Moses calls a timeout. See, Moses is the one writing this and, and, and telling us about creation. Then verse, 20, verse 24 in chapter 2 is kind of him pausing for a second and summarizing and teaching us what has just happened. And this is what he says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the verse that Paul quotes in Ephesians 5. This is the verse that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 6. This is the verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 19 when he's talking about divorce. This is all over the New Testament. This is the linchpin, y'all, for understanding marriage. If we don't understand the meaning and the implications of a one flesh union, we don't understand marriage. In ancient Near Eastern culture, the parental bond was supreme, but God says there's a bond that supersedes that bond. It's the marital bond. The very first human relationship in the world was not father-son. It was husband-wife. This is a challenging truth for a lot of parents today who can't seem to stop. There's a lot of parents I see who can't seem to stop meddling in their children's affairs even when they're married. It's kind of like Everybody Loves Raymond, where the, woman, the wife says... <laughs> that, that story, is, that, that show is funny because it's like real life. I know parents who will take sides with their children against their children's spouses and will tear them apart. And what God says is, no, 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 you don't take your child's side, you take their side. It's a one flesh union. I think uh, for those of you who listened to Mike Harris Monday night, what did he say? He said, I was thankful that my parents didn't make me choose between Louie Ann, 
he did, they didn't come and pick sides. He says, because if they had, I don't think I would have gotten back. For, y'all, for those of y'all who don't know, Mike Harris divorced Leanne, found Jesus, married her again. And he says, all my friends, all her friends, pick sides. We're no longer friends with any of them because they wedged us against each other and pick sides. But thank God my parents didn't get in the middle of it. This is why God says, get out of the house and get your own house. That's what He says. And vice versa, men and women, you can't come back to the parents when things don't get go right with your spouse. Shay, Cody, you know, God willing, y'all get married someday. Cody, if you get in a fight with Shay, don't you go back to Mama and tell her what Shay did. It's that your, your supreme bond is with Shay now, not with Mom. And Shay, for you the same. The reason this one flesh bond is so important is because it points to the intimate union between Christ and His church. Think about this, y'all. In heaven, we will be indwelled with Christ's Spirit. But when Jesus comes, He takes on also our what? Flesh. So in heaven, we will be united with Christ in spirit and in flesh. This is why even sexual intercourse is designed by God to point in a very real way to the intimate union between Christ and His church. Next week we'll talk a little bit more about that. Remember in Paul, Ephesians 5 says, nobody hated his own flesh. She's your flesh. One of the biggest steps in our marriage is the day that Abby Todd understood, I have authority over Kelly as the head of, of our marriage. But what I do with my body is her business. My body is hers just like hers is mine. What a man does in secret with his body has implications upon his wife. And the things a wife does to her body affects her husband. And God designed it like that. The intimacy of marriage is the picture of a perfectly airtight union between Christ and His church. In the end, I can't even think about this, just fathom. In the end, in heaven, at the resurrection, at the end of time, I will share the same flesh as Jesus. I'll get my resurrection body just like He has His. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read 1 Corinthians 15. Just think about that. The two shall become one flesh. That's a picture of the gospel. Who said marriage was boring? God has given us marriage so that the further we explore it, the deeper we go into our understanding of Jesus and the gospel. Ephesians 5 is one of the deepest theological passages in the entire Bible. It's about marriage. When we learn about marriage, we learn about ourselves. And we, more, we learn more about the God who made us and who died for us. Next week, we're going to, talk, we're going to go deeper. We're going to talk about divorce. How should we look to divorce? How should we uh, interact with people who have been divorced? Um, talk a little bit about homosexuality. We're going to go a little bit into, into Genesis 3 because Genesis 3 is when sin comes in and gives us a lot of a, a really good picture of the way we see marriages today. So we go, from, we go from Adam saying, at last, to Adam going, it was her fault. And that's the, marriage, that's the picture of marriage we see today. 
And so inevitably, I've, I've been asked this before. When people decide to ask big theological questions to the pastor, they'll go, Bobby, if God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin and plunge humanity into death, disease, slavery, murder, why did he even create them? You ever thought about that? If he knew so many people were going to perish, why even do it? The answer is embedded in human sexuality. Because when he says man and woman, he goes, I know you can't see it now, Adam, because you just sinned, you just disobeyed, you just rebelled against me. But what if I could tell you that your marriage to Eve is a picture of what my son Jesus is going to do to save his elect? answer is embedded in human sexuality. And that's why when we learn about marriage, we learn about the gospel. When we come to love our, our wives more, wives, when you come and love your husband more, you're learning what it means when Jesus says, you didn't come and love me, I loved you. And we learn more about the sovereign grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for marriage. Thank you for womanhood. Thank you for manhood. Thank you for creating marriage in such a way that the man has authority and the woman has submission with godliness. Thank you for self-sacrificing authority that was displayed for us in Jesus so that we could know how to love and lead our wives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives the church the power to obey the lordship of Jesus so that our wives could know how to submit and serve their husbands. Father, let us understand and marvel and savor the beauty of marriage and let it give us, please, 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 let it give our marriages at Haynes Creek a gospel color to them so that we could look upon these marriages, the young, the old, and we could see Jesus. All these things we ask in your son's name, amen.